Please note that this story about a community coming together to improve the lives of Indigenous children and their families was recorded in May 2021, just weeks before the discovery of the unmarked graves of 215 Indigenous children at the former site of a residential school in Kamloops, BC. We dedicate this podcast to all the innocent children who died in residential schools, to the courageous survivors who live with the trauma, and to all the families affected. Hi everyone, it's Cheryl Rose, and you're listening to a podcast called Maybe. It's about the realities of working for social innovation. And these are stories about uncertainty and risk, and they're honest conversations with people about what it's like to hold really big questions, especially when you're not sure about any answers. My own work has been all about supporting people who engage with that kind of complexity, people with a passion for big change. And sometimes the most important first step that you can take when you're looking for change in communities is to have the courage to radically adapt typical plans, proven strategies, and accepted change processes so that the how and what of change making matches who most wants change and why change is needed. That pretty much sums up the approach of a remarkable Indigenous-led social innovation lab in Surrey, BC called Skookum Lab. So Skookum was a word chosen by the community for the lab, but it is an actual Chinook word. And Chinook is an Indigenous trading language on the west coast of North America. Um, And it means like strong, it can mean powerful, it can mean brave, and it's kind of can mean really cool. (laughs) So it was like now today you'll hear people say like, oh, you know, there's a lot of rapids called Skookum Rapids, for example. It means, you know, those are powerful rapids, watch out. But you can also have a really Skookum car because it's like super cool, it's well built, it's fast, you know. And we want it to be like a Skookum lab. That term lab can mean a lot of different things, but usually social labs include some similar elements, choosing the right process, getting support and interest to do something with that, a research phase to learn more about the problem and who needs to be involved, workshops where key people come together to connect, to learn together, and to come up with new ideas for change. And finally, a time for testing out prototypes, those ideas that they've come up with to see if it makes any difference out in the world. The person that you just listened to telling us about where the word skookum comes from is Sheldon Tetro. Sheldon and his colleague Jessica Slater are at the very center of the diverse and talented Skookum Lab team. I asked them to tell me about the very beginning of their story, including the serious doubts they had about anything called a social innovation lab. Cree Nation, Treaty 5, Ochinua. My traditional name is White Buffalo Woman. My English name is Jessica Slater. My mom is from Fisher River Cree Nation in Treaty 5 in Manitoba. And I'm happy to be coming to you today from the unceded territories of the Kwantlen and Katsi people. My name is Sheldon Tatro, and uh, I'm a citizen of the Métis Nation of BC. My family is originally from Manitoba. I moved west of the Rockies for love, and it's worked out just fine. (laughs) Uh, And I'm one of the Skookum Lab Social Innovation Coordinators, along with Jessica. 
Before we dive in, I want to acknowledge that Skookum Lab, our work takes place on the unceded territories of the Keitsi, Kwantlen, Semiamu, Coquitlam, Kakite, and Tawasim First Nations on what is now known as Surrey, BC today. That's great. Thank you, Jessica. So tell me a little bit about the beginning of Skookum Lab. So it was about 2017 when the Surrey Urban Indigenous Leadership Committee, which was at the time a newly formed Indigenous coalition in Surrey. And the coalition was trying to be a voice for urban Indigenous people in Surrey. At that time, we were largely invisible in the community. So there was no understanding of the community and there was little recognition of the community. So um, what we kind of just started doing at that time was compiling numbers, talking to people, trying to describe the community and kind of put that into some kind of a publication. So what we learned was pretty cool was that Surrey has the largest and fastest growing urban Indigenous population in BC, which was a real wow moment because people actually didn't know that. Like we, the community itself didn't know that. But we also learned some other things, like we learned that at that time, 45% of Indigenous children living in Surrey were living in poverty. And we really just wanted to change that. We couldn't get it out of our heads and we kind of wanted to do something about it. You know, we wanted to address Indigenous child poverty, but what we wanted was Surrey to be a great place to raise an Indigenous child. So we started looking around at like ways we might do that. You know, it kind of was pretty overwhelming at that moment. It was kind of hard to fathom, like how do you tackle such a pervasive and complicated kind of issue? But we were committed to doing it. And it just so happened, like by happenstance, we kind of started bumping into people who were into social innovation, (laughs) Uh, yourself included, Cheryl. Like we kind of got intrigued and we just started looking at the approach and could we use this? But then the thing that really sealed the deal for us was when we had a chance to travel to Winnipeg and visit the Boldness Project and met with Diane Rusin and her team. And it really just kind of like showed us what was possible. And it also showed us how we could use this social innovation methodology and approach, but in a very Indigenous way. And that really was what we wanted to do from the very beginning. And so that launched us down this path. You discover that there's some of these possibilities. You start getting connected to some other Indigenous leadership in other communities. What kind of support did you pull together to actually really be able to make this real from this idea stage to saying we're going to do something like this in Surrey? Well, it took a while to come together. I mean, I can't say like we knew from the beginning exactly what we were getting into. And we had a lot of doubts and apprehensions, to be honest, about moving into social innovation because it did seem like a very exclusive club in a way like the language is different to be honest it's very white the social economic of the people involved in it didn't really match who our community was but you know like going to boldness it just gave us a vision of something could be and one thing that um, we learned there which doesn't seem radical now but at the time it was because we were trying to think of like If we're a social innovation lab, what does it have to look like? What do we have to do? All these kind of have to things. And when we went there, they just said, you know, do what's appropriate for you and the community. Like make it your own, use your own values, embed your own values and processes into it. And so all of a sudden it was kind of like a relief, like we could do things. We didn't have to be so constricted by it. 
but it opened up possibilities for us. And then we filled in the foundation with our own values and principles. And we also made relationships with the people who were doing social innovation that helped. And then we really were able to kind of, we got legs and traction when we brought on, you know, people like Jessica became a lead for us in terms of how we designed our community engagement, which really set us apart from anything anyone else was doing and really helped us go deep in the communities. You two have really been the hub of the wheel, but Jessica, you particularly had ideas about and were really leading on engaging with the community and doing what lots of lab processes kind of thought of as the research phase, but you had a very different approach to that. So I wonder if you could talk about that. Sure. Yeah. I come into this work as an artist primarily, and I've always been a bit of a big picture thinker. So right from the beginning, it was so wonderful to have the autonomy and freedom to be able to explore this process from a design standpoint. And right off the bat, I wanted to mention that we engaged Wes Harmon, who's a mixed race, trans, non-binary artist from Lake Babine region to do our logo. And that was the beginning of this visual richness that we really pride our lab on. And from there, we engaged a number of artists to come on and We got designs from them to use in our mural projects, to use when we engage with communities. So I feel like by engaging artists and having that artistic element early on really made it safe for a lot of community to participate. And then in terms of, you know, my process, I've been really fortunate to be able to have a strong cultural background back home and, you know, receive the teachings from my aunties and uncles. And one of those teachings is around the star blanket. So I was able to implement some of those teachings in our engagement strategies early on, which was really fantastic way to engage with a huge number of people in a very short amount of time. Yeah, just to that point, I think Jessica spoke to, I think it was over a thousand Indigenous residents of Surrey, just through that one engagement alone, her method, it was based in cultural teachings from her own nation, but it also allowed people from many different nations to participate in their own unique way. That was kind of the beauty of this actual methodology. Well, I saw evidence of the star blanket methodology, the star blanket engagement tool, but really it was the star blanket co-creation of a beautiful visual It looked like kind of a mosaic quilt to me. And every little geometric piece held some message from people about what daily life was like, about what poverty was like, but also about what their hopes and their dreams were. And so it was just such a beautiful, creative way of collecting voice, young people from mothers and fathers, from elders. It seemed to me that you tried to bring in as many different kinds of voices that might have different way of knowing the problem, but also a way of describing how things could be better. So it was really beautiful and rich. And the evidence of using art to tell story and to represent voice was just represented in so many different kinds of ways in your lab process, music, dance, song, the many different kinds of visuals. And as you say, Jessica, I think it helped community feel safe. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. In what ways did that help the community feel safe to be a part of the Skookum Lab process? 
Well, one thing that we learned really early on, you know, in the previous research that Swilsey had done was that the community felt largely invisible and disconnected from each other. And the beautiful thing about the teaching of our communities is that our communities relied on our woven and collective gifts for the health of the entire community. So we weren't able to thrive as a nation without the actualization of every gift in our community. And we had very complex and beautiful processes to foster that. So what the Star Blanket really represents is that the contribution of each individual is needed for our community to be healthy and thriving. My role in Skookum Lab was as an invited social innovation advisor. I was available to the team when asked to be a resource for all kinds of things, but especially around a standard lab process and facilitation tools. I was honored to share my own experiences and what I knew about it, but I learned so much by witnessing firsthand the incredible thoughtfulness, creativity, and sense of responsibility that this Indigenous team brought to making a lab process their own. Every time that I engaged with Skookum Lab, I was very struck by the way you were shaping and molding kind of a template process to be sure that it made sense in this community and that it incorporated culturally appropriate ways of being together, thinking together, everything from different language you use to particular ways of setting up a room, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you've talked about art and how important that was. And you've talked about making sure there was a space where the diversity of the Surrey Indigenous community could feel welcome and could feel that they could come together and be a part of this change process. But considering what a typical lab often looks like, can you give a few examples of things that you did a bit differently that you feel made a big difference to this being a lab that was led by, it was contributed into, and it was for the Indigenous community in your city? First and foremost, we wanted to honour the protocols of the land-based nations. These protocols are, you know, come from time immemorial. All of our nations have protocols that we would observe when we're visiting another nation, and we are visitors here on Coast Salish territories. So that was really central. And we're so fortunate to have healthy, robust relationships with the land-based nations that we're on. So early on, we engaged Kwantlen First Nation to help with our second campfire, I think it was. And they grounded the work in their ceremonial protocols. And we were able to honour the elders who, you know, had really guided our process up until that point. But we are also taking what we're calling a culturally intersectional approach because in an urban environment, you have so many nations present and there's a huge Métis population in Surrey. We wanted to make space for the ancestries of every participant to be able to come forward and to be celebrated. And so it was really crucial for us to be building safe containers for this work to take place, grounded in our cultural protocols, grounded in our cultural values. You know, if I could add to that, you can look throughout the lab, like from the smallest thing we do to kind of the biggest thing, how we've indigenized it. And we've asked people, is this an Indigenous lab? Like, how do you see this as an Indigenous lab? The top response that we got was people said, it has an Indigenous heart. And what they meant by that is like, yes, like when we have a lab gathering, 
or a design forum, we call it a campfire. And we actually sit around a campfire. And yes, we've done, you know, like all these little things to make it unique. Like we'll have sounds of the forest playing in our labs, you know, but, but it's from that little thing up to the big things. We have a set of core principles in the lab and the central one is centering indigenous wisdom. And that's the lens through which every time we do something, we ask ourselves, how are we centering that principle? So it's kind of from that little thing up to the big thing, right? And another example, what that means to have an indigenous heart, we weren't created or thought of or being controlled by a non-indigenous organization that's dressed up their lab like an indigenous social innovation lab and hired a couple of indigenous coordinators to run it. We have a, a governance ecosystem we talk about in our lab that's not like a traditional hierarchy of how you might run a big project like this. It involves multiple actors and contributors within this governance ecosystem. And all of them contribute these really special gifts that Jessica's talking about, but they're all indigenous organizations, indigenous people working for the indigenous community in Surrey. And I think people see that, they know it. And that's what they mean, like that the indigenous heart is that you're real. And I feel like it's hard to kind of like put your finger on what it is, but people know it. So another piece I just want to mention about that, too, is that we really had to be careful around our language. So we had a number of community members come forward, people working in the lab, actually. And, you know, when there would be different people in the systems naming folks that are impacted by this issue as vulnerable, they said, you know, we're not doing that. These are not vulnerable people. They're not at risk community members because the risk is really the colonial impacts that are still felt by our community. And we need to hold that system accountable and put the onus back on where it belongs. So we were kind of doing this distributed power model, circular power model that is very Indigenous, where we are uplifting the voices of folks that are most impacted, and they are considered on an equal playing ground as some of the systems entrepreneurs, you know, that are very high up in their provincial ministries. So I think that rebalancing of power really made these events successful? I'm just thinking about the campfires that I was at, and I know you had all together so far in the lab over three years, where you've had a pretty radically diverse groups of people come together, right? We've talked about how you've talked to thousands of people in the community, but in those campfires, you'd have like 40, 50 people. Can you just give a bit of a sense of who was present, the diversity of the people that came together to sit in a circle around that campfire, talk about this issue and dream of it being different and commit to taking action for it to be different? Like who was there? So in terms of who was there, we were so honored and privileged to get to talk to community members who are most affected by this issue. And their wisdom was what was guiding the entire lab, which, you know, is a real power reversal from a lot of the systems that we see that are very hierarchical, that place a lot of power in 
governance systems and ministries in um, different sectors. You know, that part of really uplifting Indigenous wisdom, what that meant to us was having those voices heard that are most impacted in a way that we are honouring them as knowledge keepers. And their lived experience is so profound and important to addressing this issue and creating lasting social change. So we had people there, you know, everyone from families, elders, folks with lived experience. We had different organizations there that are working with Indigenous communities in Surrey. We had different experts, you know, coming from health and education. And then we had policymakers and folks from provincial ministries there that can exact change. It was a really beautiful melting pot to come together on an issue and have that collective impact. You also had some pretty sustained engagement. By that, I mean, like people came to the first one and maybe they're just curious or maybe they feel they have to be there or whatever it is, but people came back. What do you think kept people engaged over months and months? And especially, as you say, so many different kinds of players, the heads of organizations, people from different ministries, people from the local government, funders, and then a lot of family members, elders, young people. Like, why did they keep coming, do you think? Well, first of all, we ask people what they want. So we ask community members, how do you want to be engaged with? How is this process going to be safe and powerful for you? And that's really what guided our process. So, you know, we say that we were coordinators of the Social Innovation Lab, but the real coordinators was the community because we were just the folks to implement their wishes. So that's what I really love about this process was that we could have that deep listening and we had the freedom and the autonomy and the self-determination to bring forward the wishes of the community in a really powerful way. And I feel like that role modeling was very exciting for systems people, you know, because you're used to working in a colonial system. It doesn't work like that. They say that that they want to engage. Engagement is often a box, you know, to check in your process. But for us, it was everything. And I think that was the difference that really indigenized this process. Other than that, we were so fortunate to have knowledge keepers and spiritual leaders and cultural ambassadors and chiefs and counselors from the land-based nations come into the process. And it really added that cultural and spiritual element that as Indigenous people is so central to our way of life and our sacred law is grounded in accountability. So bringing that spirit of reciprocity and accountability to the forefront that I feel like made it a powerful process that everybody was excited to engage in. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to add to like, I agree with everything Jessica said. And I also think that we have had a lot of fun over three years. <laughs> like it is not like an engagement you've <laughs> ever been involved in because of COVID. We did our last campfire on Zoom and people left saying it was the best meeting they've ever been to. <laughs> Who says that about Zoom? <laughs> you know, and it was like, and we're talking about things like systemic racism. And it's like, how did we get to that place? And, it, you know, I think Jessica kind of mentioned it. Over three years, we've really developed deep relationships that are very reciprocal, they're not extractive. And the big thing that I keep thinking about, it was uh, something that someone said in one of our labs when we were actually doing it about systemic racism, and they said, culture is healing. And because our lab is so grounded in culture, there is an attraction to that, there's a stability in that, a safety in that. 
it creates a seriousness about what you're doing, but it also can be purifying and cleansing and healing at the same time. And so I think for everyone involved, it's so out of the box from what they're used to being involved in that it just really keeps people engaged. You know, that is something for any lab, like I have to say, you can't do that in a one year project or mm -hmm. one year lab, like we're on the third year. It doesn't happen overnight, but you have to cultivate that kind of relationship and trust to see the benefits of it. Most engagements, you don't have the time to do that. I felt when I was part of it that I showed up so much more as a whole person. And I think that's some of what you're getting at as well. Indigenous people are, you said, you know, so thirsty for being involved in those kind of change processes. But I would say everyone who wants to actually see change is hungry for that sense that this is a real place where we're really going to commit to each other to make a difference here, to move in a much more positive direction. I'd like to talk a little bit about that now, if you could talk about what do you see as some of the impact that's come from Skookum Lab so far in these past three years? It was interesting the way we started out, right? We started out with some statistics from Stats Canada around income measures that led us to the idea that, you know, there's 45% Indigenous child poverty in Surrey. We thought we were talking about income security <laughs> at the beginning this is right at the very beginning and it was going to be a lab around income security for families and children but the community was talking about the importance of family relations and connections around community sense of connection to each other and the sense of cultural identity and kind of strength from that as being their conception of where they wanted to be as a wealthy person. And so it kind of, it pushed us to reframe the whole notion of what poverty means. And so now we talk, we've kind of coined this phrase, like these are the four C's. So you've got connection to family is important, cultural identity is important, community connection is important, and the cash component is also important. But if you're going to design a program to address Indigenous child poverty, it has to involve all four of those things, not one in isolation of the other. And so I guess as a lasting impact, it's like kind of realizing that the way we frame up these issues can really impact how you develop solutions to them. And so when you're actually listening to the community and what they're saying, you get a much more holistic, comprehensive and richer idea of what it is you're striving to achieve and I feel like that's a real great lasting impact from this is that it's not so narrowly focused on this deficit it's really about trying to create a rich wealthy community. So Jessica I just want to give you a chance as well to talk about what do you think are some key impacts that wouldn't have happened if Skookum Lab didn't exist? I see this theme woven throughout my work that Indigenous people do a lot with a little. And we had um, pretty good funding, you know, over our three years, but we were supposed to have three prototypes. We ended up having eight and other organizations did five of their own. The impact that way was quite a bit broader than we initially had hoped. And that to me 
is a real signal of systemic change when actors in the system are starting to take on pieces of this work and be responsible for them. I'm just so grateful for that and to see how exponential this little lab process has been. But for me personally, just working with the community, we developed these guide groups, these really solid groups of people that have now come together and, you know, especially through COVID have supported one another. We have folks that have found family that they didn't know that they had, like actual blood family. And then a lot of folks have adopted younger people, you know, as they now call them auntie and uncle. And these are people that have been traditionally displaced from their homelands, but also from their families through the 60s scoop and residential school. So for me, it's really about revitalizing kinship systems because our kinship systems are what made our nation strong. And I feel like they were intentionally dismantled through colonization. So a part of our efforts to decolonize and to develop thriving communities is to reconnect people. We also have the Skookum Lab Ambassadors Program, which is a group of eight Indigenous women leaders from all walks of life and all different levels of education. And it's a very intergenerational group. We have moms and aunties and youth, and it just so happened to be women. It was funny because we didn't intend for it to be that, but that's how it kind of came together. And seeing these young women develop into leaders for advocacy and social change has just been such a rewarding part of the work. They have done national presentations, you know, they've done presentations to different universities and different funding bodies, different sectors of our community that are working on issues of poverty. We've also now partnered with SFU's Center for Educational Leadership and Policy, and we were successful in obtaining a SHIRK grant, and we're co-developing Urban Indigenous Women's Leadership Theory. So that is just so exciting. And to see these community-based women now, three of them have been hired as community researchers at SFU. We're doing a film. It's just growing in all these ways. So for me, it's really about the capacity that we've developed in the community, creating the environment for avenues of social change that people can take, you know, people that have been traditionally isolated or displaced. And then other than that, it's been really exciting too to see how the work has taken on different forms and different sectors. So we now have the Skookum Health Lab. We have a housing lab because one of the biggest issues that people are facing in Surrey in terms of poverty is the lack of affordable housing. So it's just kind of become this multi-armed beast, I call it sometimes. And it's really exciting. Through this lab process, we have created this and amplified this voice that's here. And you can't turn that back now. We are here. We're loud. We're proud. That whole thing. People aren't going away anymore. They've realized what the power is in terms of working together, staying connected and being engaged. I think that's going to have like a lasting social impact. We still have to change resource flows. That's still a big issue here. But I think that we're on track to do that. And it's just going to take a bit more time. I also think it's brought a level of awareness and accountability to the system, too, about the lack of resources that have been coming into Surrey traditionally, you know, because we have similar sized population to Vancouver and there was a huge inequity when we came into this work. And now we're seeing that shift and change. And, you know, that is fantastic. It's super exciting. The one thing I will just put out there is that we have only 
a handful of Indigenous organizations in Surrey, whereas Vancouver has closer to 30 for a similar sized population. So what we've become really interested in is what are the conditions that we need to create to build capacity in the community to attract other Indigenous organizations to come into the region. Because traditionally, a lot of non-Indigenous organizations were getting the funding to serve our population. And, you know, there were reports from that being a little problematic in a few areas. So just interested to see how that's going to develop. It sounds like Skookum Lab has made a difference. It sounds like Surrey is already on track to be the kind of community that is a good place for an Indigenous child to grow up, for Indigenous families to live in. And I know that there is more that people can read about and learn about on the Skookum website, about some of the different things that are happening around housing, around health, around education, even around networking, social services. It's such a great story. And there are so many arms. These are getting embedded within the system. And as you say, such a sign of health and success that people that had come to a campfire, that those people are working more closely together and people are taking real responsibility now for making things continue to go in the right direction and change to happen. That's going to benefit the well-being of Indigenous children, families, communities and nations in the city of Surrey. So I just want to ask, what has it meant to you personally to be involved in Skookum Lab? Well, I can say that this was my dream job. (laughs) And, you know, uh, we just had such a fantastic team that really shared a strong vision. We had a very clear vision for what we wanted for our community. And everybody brought such diverse gifts. I'm really passionate about actualizing gifts. And I feel like I was able to do that with myself in this project. Yeah, it's just been a fantastic experience. And I also wanted to mention too, getting to engage with the national community in social innovation has been fantastic as well. And being, you know, really invited into a lot of these spaces where people are doing exciting work with our communities and really holding the system accountable in ways that we would have traditionally done in our communities pre-contact. So yeah, it's just, it's been awesome. And Sheldon, what has this meant for you? It's been a really rewarding kind of journey. Um, When we started, I was one of the people that was kind of a doubter. That's kind of my nature is to say, why won't this work? And, you know, to kind of rain on people's parade and all that kind of stuff. And through this all, I've become a much more of a believer. Like, I feel like you still need to create your own path, use the tools that are there to use, but really make them your own. But I do feel that um, it's worked. You know, I agree totally with Jessica, like it's not just Jessica and I, there's a whole team of people and a community around. I've never felt alone in doing this. Like I've always felt really supported in the work that we do. We have this principle around taking risks for the purpose of learning. And sometimes we do things that are a bit risky, like just trying things with people. And people have given us the latitude to do that. And that's what I mean about feeling supported. Like we've never been tore down that we're always sort of, supported to try these things that is a bit magical like I also have been working you know with indigenous governments and communities for 25 years and every project's not like this and I know the lab is sort of coming to an end but Skookum will continue we've committed within the Surrey Urban Indigenous Leadership Committee to having the spirit 
the approaches, the level of engagement continue and have even the brand Skookum continue. It's just the lab will come to a close. And I think there is a strategic thinking around drawing the lab itself to a close, but allowing the spirit to continue. Thank you both for coming today and talking with me and telling this really great story. But um, thank you for also all that you've invested in learning how to do a social innovation lab process in a particular way that really matters when you're looking at Indigenous issues or with Indigenous communities. You have so much learning to share. And thank you for inviting me to be a little bit a part of it because it has been really exciting for me to watch your courage, how certain you looked so often when I knew that you were not sure, <laughs> but that you were certain that it was okay to not be sure and <laughs> that you never lost sight of doing this on behalf of community members. You've been a wonderful ally to us. You really have in the way that you've been present when we needed and asked for your support and also allowed us to chart our own path. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, that really role models allyship and true a true champion is when, you know, you're there to support and you also back away to let it grow. So that was a really cool thing to witness. And I just wanted to add one last thing that, you know, we've been busy compiling all of the work of Skookum Lab and getting all of our reports together. But one thing I'm really interested in writing about and sharing is about our methodology and to see how our methods could be applied to different communities and different land-based nations. And I think that our process can be duplicated because it's really dependent on the protocols of the land-based nations where you're working. And so to be able to develop a model that can be replicated is something that's really exciting as well. That is exciting. I think many people will be interested in learning more about what Skookum Lab has done so far, what's going to become of this energy in the future, and anything when you are ready and willing to share um, that will be resources for folks. Stay tuned, everyone, to hear more from Skookum Lab over the next little while about all that they've learned from the years that they've invested in awareness raising, community building, and working for system change on behalf of Indigenous children and their families in Surrey, BC. For now, I want to say how grateful I am to have learned so much from them about humility, about humor, about commitment and creativity, about cultural integrity, and about the courage it takes to welcome heart and all that means as absolutely central to connecting together to make big change happen. Maybe there are gifts in all of that for all of us. I want to thank Jessica Slater and Sheldon Tetro for being my guests today and for sharing their story of very successfully indigenizing a social innovation lab process. They, their team, and all the many participants who gathered for the Skookum Campfires are truly an inspiration. This podcast is inspired by the book Getting to Maybe, written by Frances Wesley, Brenda Zimmerman, and Michael Quinn Patton. Big thanks to Esther Gad for good company, great conversation, and her very talented post-production support. Esther and I live and work as settlers on the traditional unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples. And finally, thank you for listening. 
I hope you'll be able to join me next time for another story about the complexities of working for this thing we call social innovation, another story about getting closer to maybe.